And now to my introduction of uh, Dr. Barry Pupkin. I have one minute to summarize an incredible career. So uh, I will be brief, but uh, I have learned a lot just reading his resume. So. <laughs> Um, so, Barry is Distinguished Professor of Nutrition at the University of North Carolina, Gillen School of Global Public Health. Uh, he holds a PhD from Cornell, and several of us did not realize that in, in agriculture and economics, so he's a, a buddy from Cornell. Um, at, at UNC, Barry established, first of all, the Division of Nutrition Epidemiology. But as if this was not enough, he also later established and led the UNC Interdisciplinary Obesity Center funded by the National Institutes of Health. Barry's work, uh, as we know, um, has been very instrumental in terms of developing the concept of the nutrition transition. Uh, Schengen already mentioned that uh, Barry was working on the nutrition transition in China in, in the early 90s. And, and really, for some people, the idea of the nutrition transition is a new thing. Well, not for Barry. And uh, in spite of all his reminding us about the importance of the nutrition transition, I think some of us are still learning about it uh, now. Uh, he's done a, a lot of work in this area, and he's done work on, on obesity per se as well and other nutrition-related uh, non-communicable diseases. Um, one thing that is also special about Barry's career is that uh, he has worked both in the U.S. and in globally in, in developing in low- and middle-income countries. That's quite unusual. Usually people focus on, on the U.S. or in, in low- and middle-income countries, but he has combined and, and I think enhanced the knowledge uh, drawing from, from both sides of the planet. Um, his, uh, his current work is evaluating impact, the impact of programs and policies meant to improve the nutrition and health of populations during their time of transition. So that's what we will hear about today. Uh, he has examples uh, of what he has worked in several countries on those issues in Mexico on the uh, sugar sweetened beverage tax and on the junk food tax, in Chile, in Colombia, uh, in South Africa as well, in Brazil. And as I said before, he also works in the U.S. and other countries with the Global Food Research Program on policies to improve our global diets. Finally, um, Barry has more than 550 peer-reviewed publications. Uh, this has to be a record. Uh, and, and even uh, also, interestingly, uh, he has published in, in higher-ranked journals in different disciplines, in epidemiology, in agriculture economics, in obesity and nutrition, in health, etc. So this is very impressive. He has published The World is Fat, eight books, I think, but The World is Fat is, is one of his famous books. And that was in 2009, so, you know, he was ahead of his time again. Uh, or, or a lot more ahead than we are, and the book has been translated in 11 languages. He has received a dozen major awards for his global contributions, chaired dissertations of, of um, doctoral students, more than 60 of them, and, and served as PI on grants totaling more than 135 million. So if you're not impressed and, and excited about the lecture yet, uh, very welcome, and we look forward to hearing your thoughts. Thank you. And where's that little slide clicker? Uh, there's supposed to be some place. Did I see it under there? Right there. Oh, sorry. 
Okay, so I want to kind of give you an overview. I'm going to first give you some sense of the shift from undernutrition to overnutrition, talk a little bit about the BMI distribution, how it's really changed across the globe, talk a few other things about overweight and undernutrition, and after I finish all of that, move on to talk about other issues. So I want to begin by letting, this is taking demographic and health survey data from over 15 years apart. So we're taking 15-year stretches and all the slides I'll show you next, looking at long-term shifts. So this is preschoolers, zero to four. This is showing the declines in stunting and wasting. We don't expect really to see any much overweight during that period. There's a little merging in some countries, like China and a few others. But the reality is we, we are seeing this long-term global decline. Not every place, but this is the annualized prevalence rate decline. So taking, let's say, a decline of 10, of, of 10 and over 15 years, you divide it by the number of years to get an annualized prevalence change. And that's kind of what these are here. And in the next slide, uh, this is for women. This is women across many, many low and middle income countries, women of childbearing age, age 15 to 49. And as you see in this slide, you can see that when you look in, in, in Asia, in, well, in East Asia, and you look in, in the Central, Euro, uh, Central Asia and Eastern Europe, and you look in Latin America, this is a decline where the low income are, are increasing overweight, are increasing faster than the, uh, I think I've missed the slide actually. Uh, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry, I skipped some slides somehow. Uh, wait. Now I'm going backwards? Yeah, you should go backwards. I, something happened and I slipped. I apologize. All right, so that's, this is now looking at children. And then this here is looking, and I'm not showing overweight among women across the world, because in every country it's going up. What I want to show here is the number of countries where the overweight among the poor is increasing faster than the overweight among the, the rich. So it's the top quintile versus the bottom quintile. And what you're finding is in Latin America, in East Asia, countries like Indonesia, China, and in Central Asia, you find in, across the board that overweight is going up much faster among the poor than the rich. When you move to South Asia, it's the opposite. It's still a problem of the rich, not the poor, in terms of rates of change. And when you move to Sub-Saharan Africa, it's the same except for Senegal, this one exception. Again, these are annualized rates of change, and so it represents many millions of people. When you look at a country like China, and you see the poor going up at 0.6% at extra per year over the rich, it's showing a huge difference. And if I looked at the absolute prevalence in a lot, many of these countries, it's much higher among, already among the poor. So that we've seen and we will see over the time as incomes increase across Asia, South Asia and elsewhere, we'll start to see the same kinds of changes. Sub-Saharan Africa, clearly outside of South Africa, will lag behind. Uh, but this is a one thing. Another thing about the face of overweight, which is something we do not understand, but it's very, very important for health, is that across 
many countries. Here, I want to just point out Mexican Americans in the US and Mexicans in Mexico and Chinese. We're seeing for the same weight, a higher after an extra five or 10 or 15 years, extra waist circumference. And what that means, I'm going to show you on the next slide. In this right here is a Brit, a BMI identical to the South, this, this person from India, Ron. They're two endocrinologists, identical BMI. The percent body fat for the Brit, as for all non-Hispanic Caucasian, very low. The percent body fat for the South Asian, very, very high. The fat around the heart and the liver and the lungs, which is the most dangerous, is triple almost, certainly more than double among the South Asians. That would be true for everybody in East Asia as well, everybody in South America that have Indian blood in them, every, people in Africa. The percent body fat for a BMI is worse than most of the world outside of non-Hispanic whites, which really means that when we take a BMI of 25, it means a lot worse if you're South Asian, if you're from the Philippines, if you're from Indonesia, if you're from China, if you're from South Africa, if you're from Chile or Mexico. So we're talking about a much bigger problem than using this WHO measure of overweight. And that's very important to understand. From a health perspective, a BMI of 23 in Mexico means you've got diabetes. In India, 22. So we're talking about a much more serious health issue, which is why we've seen the explosion across the low and middle income countries of all the non-communicable diseases, heart disease, cancers, and so on. So this is what WHO uses the term double burden. They don't like to use triple burden. So on the left, this is the classic double burden where the countries that have what WHO and UNICEF would call very high levels of underweight, thinness if it's women uh, from 15 on up, uh, and underweight among preschoolers, and anybody overweight in the family, be it a child or an adult. And this is across all, age, all ages based on estimated data. And you see that among the double burden countries, you see Indonesia and India in, the, in Asia, and then you see Sub-Saharan Africa. And it's really South Asia and Southeast Asia. Then when you add iron deficiency anemia to that, and you have really what people call a triple burden, but WHO wants to still call it a double burden, you have a few extra countries added. But the reality is, this is still the region where you got if you take a country of Indonesia, the third, fourth biggest country in the world, you've got 30% of the adults with overweight, and you've also got this very severe undernutrition problem. And this is what's going on with modern economic and technological change. And I'll talk a little bit about that, uh, but not going into the detail I would if I had longer. The next thing I want to point out is that this double burden, if you go back 1990, in the 90s, and you look at the demographic and health surveys, the, the peak was around 10, 12, 10, 12 percent. It's just shifting outward, excuse me. It's shifting over to the right as we move to the current period. So what we're seeing is the same peak incomes, around three, four, five thousand in, in income per capita and, and what we call in a, in a real income per capita terms. I'm not going to go into the details. And you see the countries that are really outliers. In both cases, you see Egypt. Egypt's out there with, 
with a double burden, a triple burden of 25, 30% and just going up. And it's really a huge outlier, but it's, uh, you can see some of the other countries uh, that are. So what is going on in the world? Well, what's going on is evolution and modern technology are clashing. So we began and we had to survive with certain basic human needs. We, we needed sweetness, and I'll come into that in a little bit reason why, but all of a sudden we have cheap sugary beverages and food, and we have sugar in everything. Uh, we, we've learned more recently in the last 20 or 30 years that our hunger and thirst mechanisms are separate, and I'll come back and I'll talk about that in a second also. We knew that because of seasonality, whenever you had animal food or anything rich and fatty, you ate it, and you gorged on it. Seasonality is only something we got rid of in the last 40 or 50 years ago in half of the world. So it's really been with us a long time, and we, we ate when food was there, and we, and we shrunk when it wasn't. And we've shown that in studies in Gambia and many countries where we followed people over the seasons. Uh, exertion. Well, since the time of the wheel, we know we've worked on technology and change to stop moving and working. And the last one is something that most people wouldn't call something biological. I certainly don't. But we never had snacking. A hundred years ago, the word didn't exist. We had some street food. We had no snacking. Modern food industry has created a fourth meal or fifth meal or sixth meal or seventh meal if you're in the US, UK, and other countries. And as I'll show you again, it's exploding across the world. The promotion of snacking food is one of the big growth sectors in the modern food world. And if you talk to anybody in the food industry, it's where they all want to go with their, their work. Uh, now, I don't want to, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about physical activity. And given the time frame they gave me, this is, this is a, a slide that shows China where we measured every two years how you stood, what you lifted, everything at market work, which is in yellow, everything in home production cooking by fire, by, by kerosene, you have a, a rice cooker, how much time did you spend lifting and stuff at home, and childcare and so forth, and transportation, moving from, from, from bikes and walking to, to buses and cars, and, whoops, again, I'm not doing well with this, and we saw this huge decline that we measured. This I haven't, we've measured it since, but I haven't updated this. But this is a huge decline. It explained both, and we've shown it in complex econometric dynamic models, we've shown it in epidemiology, longitudinal kind of things, that the reduction in physical activity at work, the reduction in physical activity at home production and childcare and cooking and cleaning and all of that, and the reduction in transportation, each was associated with least a doubling of overweight. So the declines in physical activity across the low and income world have been happening. They will accelerate in Sub-Saharan Africa just as they have hit all of Asia and they hit earlier Latin America, and they are a major cause of the problem, but they're not a solution. If I showed you some other slides that I would usually like to show, essentially you can't to offset that coke, you'd have to run a half a mile or walk a mile, and you, we're not going to do that. We're not going to offset the food with, with, and we're not going to go backwards and start lifting and carrying and plowing by hand and doing all the things that people did 50 and 100 years ago uh, when I first started living in Asia, 50 years ago, not 100. Uh, <laughs> and this is thinking about how we deal with food. 
thinking of how recent the modern industrial food supply is. If I, I, there are many other slides I could show, but the reality is that what we have today is a very different food supply than when I grew up. When I grew up, there wasn't any highly processed food that had all sorts of added chemicals and other kind of things. And today, the food that you see in the market, unless it's real food that you're buying, is really the number of ingredients are amazing. And then we have, for the US and a bunch of other countries, the ingredients are the sub-ingredients from the industry. And you'd be shocked what's in your food. So the reality is we've really changed in the processing and packaging of food. But what's gone on is we've had global increases very high across every country in the world in caloric sweeteners. And it's not just in beverages. It's not just Coke and Pepsi and all the other sugary beverage companies. It's also in packaged food, as I'll show you in a second. It's in, we're having increases in animal source foods, which are not necessarily good for the planet's environment and other complexities, but we need to share. We right now in US and Europe consume, you know, like uh, several hundred kilos of person, depending on how you measure, 150 kilo of food per capita per year, really a lot of animal source food. And the rest of the world is one-fifth, one-sixth, one-eighth of that. So, but as China goes up by a gram or 10 grams a year, it really has an impact on the world, food and food prices. Uh, refined carbohydrates and highly processed foods are really going up, ready to eat, ready to heat, Snack food and other kinds of foods are just ubiquitous across the globe. I can't tell you where. I can go to any village in any country and take you, and you'll find them. Uh, and lastly, edible oils. And particularly in low and middle income countries now, red palm oil, just exploding vegetable oils in use. And we've documented that a lot, had international conferences on it, had conferences in China, which is one of, one of the places it's really happened. Uh, and at the same time, all the healthy stuff in our diet has gone down. And we know that. We've tried things to deal with it, but we're not really doing very much. And that's part of the future that we really have to figure out ways to deal with that. And at the same time, food preparation time. When I started, we did time use studies in the 70s across all of Asia. People were spending two to four hours a day in food prep. In Asia today, an hour or less. If you go to the US, 27 minutes per per person, per household, per day on food preparation. That's what we found in a paper we did a couple years ago from time use studies here. Food preparation's gone. Diets are changing. People's lifestyles are changing. All of these shifts are going on really fast. And they're accelerating. And that's partly what I want to keep reminding you. Everything that we see going on here it's just accelerating every country we go to. And it's just happening at a speed that is, is just what happened in Latin America and took maybe 10 or 20 years has happened in Asia in five or eight years. It's going to happen in Africa in less than that. It's the changes going on globally in diets and food supplies are really quite shocking as you move country to country. So now I want to talk first about beverages and versus food. And the reason is you may or may not know it, but if you do not drink water for three to seven days, you'll die. But you can live without food for one or two months before you die. And because of that, for some reason, we have to keep eating all the time and 
drinking water every day, but we ate episodically. And these mechanisms separated. You don't want to be drinking water and gorging on that, on that deer for somehow what we drink doesn't affect what we eat. And what that means is this slide shows in the, this is watermelon juice, this is coconut milk, this is milk in each case. And then over here is the watermelon, the coconut meat, and the cheese. If you consume a food as a liquid, you consume more calories in the day because you don't compensate by reducing your beverage. If you, as a beverage, you don't reduce your food intake. We only have learned that in the last 20, 25 years ago. And now dozens, hundreds of clinical studies have replicated and shown this. So drinking really calories has really affected the world in ways that we never knew, which is one of the reasons why you see people pushing so much for sugary beverages and getting rid of all the kind of juices and beverages that, that the world drinking so much of and that were being pushed on the world through marketing and so forth. The other thing is the distribution of these beverages. It's very, this is the top 20, 10% and top 25% in Mexico. And in every country, it's maldistributed. So you've got a subpopulation of 20 to 40%. In our country, 40% consume 300 or more calories a day from sugary beverages. In Mexico, it's a little bit less. But the fact is, that's a lot. And that's a lot of sugar to put in you, a lot of extra calories. And that leads to a lot of diabetes, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and certainly overweight. And it's all new. We did not, for the longest time, have all these beverages. If you look at our history and you look at how recent modern caloric beverages are, we're talking about 100, 150 years for the sugary beverages of the world, the Cokes, the Pepsis, and so on. So these changes are very, very recent, and we have to understand the dynamics of it. And we have to see if we look over here, that as countries go up in income, they're consuming more and more of it. And the rate of growth in the middle income countries is the peak. If you talk to the Cokes and the Pepsis, their markets are India, China, Asia, the low and middle income countries where the growth is huge and they, it's already, India's already the fifth biggest and they hardly consume anything per capita market in the world and China's the second. I mean, the fact is Asia, Africa are the new market for these countries. And they're really, what we're seeing here and that we're fighting here, Mexico, Latin America, other countries are fighting is a, is a global issue. But I want to go beyond, and I don't want to go through this, but we looked at all the food supply in the US with all the ingredients and the ingredients of the ingredients. And we found that, and I just want to point out this one. This is foods and the US food supply. These are the products. And there was about, as you can see here in this year, about 113,000 unique products. Coke would have been in there 10 times, but the same red product. But the point is 70% of them had almost six, 65 to 70% have sugar added to them, caloric sweeteners. And that is, if I then took it in terms of purchases and the amount, it's, it's like 85 percent because this is not weighting it. This is just the products. The healthy products don't have many people consuming them. It's the, the unhealthy ones. Second is snacking. And the reason I bring up snacking a lot is because it is such a huge growth sector for the food industry and the way it's growing. 
Brazil, Mexico, and the U.S. all have a fifth or more of the calories from snacks. But it is growing, even in these countries. But it's being promoted globally. So, and it's just extra. And what and if it was healthy? When I went to China, they had um, one, around a half a percent snack, and it was on fruit. Today, it's doubling and tripling every time we do another survey. And it's becoming junk food. So, sorry for the term, but it's becoming unhealthy processed packaged food, whereas initially, they didn't eat any sugar in China when I went there in 1989. Two grams per capita per day. They have a sugar reserve today. Uh, so look at the junk food sales. First look over here as your countries go up in income. You just see the junk food sales. And then you look over here in the annualized growth rate. And you can see as you move into low income, it doesn't take a lot of income to get start really seeing it growing. And look here at just a few countries to give you a little idea. This time I picked Asia. I should have picked some of the African countries because I had people raising with me, well, it's not happening in Africa. And China's obviously the market they're going after the most. India they're really going after. Uh, and the fact is that this is something I can show across the countries in Africa where I have the same kind of data, that this is these unhealthy kind of highly processed food full of sugar and fat and salt and, and, and lots of chemicals is really growing. And this is food service. And this is only, this is trends. This is not the whole package. This is only food service from the large global food companies. But the trends seem to fit the countries generally when we, when we match them. And again, you can see how food service is going up in some of these countries. And you can just look at the two biggest just to get a little sense of that. Um, so, and then next. The next thing we have to understand is in the 50s and 60s, we created a whole revolution in edible oils. We figured out a way to get out of soybeans, cottonseed, corn, everything else, cheap vegetable oils. We created ways to do that. We then got hydrogenation. We got the Criscos and the trans fats. But we also got cheap oil. In the 90s to the last, to the recent decade, that's hit the low and middle income country in a huge way. And it's really growing. And particularly now, red palm oil in Latin America, Asia, Africa is really exploding, the, the least healthy of all the oils. Uh, other critical eating behaviors I'm not going to really talk about, but you can understand them. I've mentioned them briefly. Uh, and then I'm not going to speak much about the food system. This is where IFPRI has done a lot of work. There was a very famous kind of study that Bart Mitten from IFPRI and Tom Reardon, another colleague, did. And where you found that increasingly, instead of governments dictating what farmers do, we're finding agribusinesses, re food retailers, food service companies like McDonald's, food retailers like Carrefour or Walmart, and, and global food businesses, the Nestle's, Coke's, Pepsi's, whatever of the world, have direct contracts with farmers. And, uh, and, and it's changing the nature of what we do. And as our food supply has changed and it's become more processed, so 58% of the calories when we asked for each item in the national survey in Mexico came from packaged processed food. China in 2011 was only 29%, but it's growing 50% a year in China, the retail sales. 
per capita. So the reality is we're going to just, we're seeing this happening across the globe. People buying packaged processed food, we're seeing a change in who is controlling the food supply, direct contracts with farmers just like we have in the U.S. And that's going to, that makes it much more complex than how we deal with regulations. And I'm not going to go there, right, given my time frame that I see there. So. Um, what I want to now talk about is taxes and fiscal policy and other kinds of things. When we do these in a country, we don't have a control. What is, if you're going to study Mexico and they're doing a national tax, we have to look at the history before the tax and study it versus the history after and look at the trajectory up or down and change. We can't control for Mexico by, let's say, we were suggested by one NIH review, oh, well, you could use the border states in the U.S. We can't. There's no equivalent to any country. Each country is very unique into itself. So we've had to figure out techniques to look at the trends in Mexico, they were declining before the tax, whereas in Chile they were going up. So you look at the trend for the, model it for the several years before it, and then you look at what the tax does to shift the trend. And that difference over here is kind of the effect of the trend, of the tax, if you put it in. And that's all we can do. We have no other way. We can use very complex econometric statistical things and so on. Harold, who's on our evaluation board, has lived, uh, committee has lived with uh, watching us do all this and commenting on it and critiquing it for years now. Uh, and what we found when we in introduced a small tax in Mexico, 10%, we really wanted at least 20%, or like Saudi Arabia, 50% on sugary beverages and 100% in energy drinks. I love those kind of taxes to really have an impact. And, but the reality is what we got in Mexico was a small 10% tax. But what we had was for the regulated tax, sugary beverages, a decline, and for the water, an increase. And we didn't know what the substitute would be. It could have been something unhealthy, but it was water. And so in the case of Mexico, it was a good thing. And then we also had a tax on junk food. But I thought I had one more slide here. There it is. I'm sorry. I'm not good with that. I'll use this thing. Uh, so in Mexico, low income were affected the most. So in economic terms, that's regressive. However, if you understand, and high income Mexicans didn't change much at all their purchasing. However, in Mexico, low-income Mexicans are undiagnosed or untreated for their diabetes. So from a health perspective, it's a really progressive tax. So whether you're going to be a real pucka economist and say, okay, that tax is regressive, or whether you're going to think in terms of total health, it's going to be very progressive. So the, the issue is, which way you look at it, but in all the countries we're dealing with, and we're now evaluating one that we helped get started in South Africa, the poor are the ones that don't have the treatments for any of the health problems that come with the, the sugary beverages and other issues. So they really are the ones being affected the most by these taxes, but also benefited the most to the extent these taxes are benefiting health. So it's a complex issue in, in all these ways and uh, to talk about them. Um, and then we had a junk food tax in Mexico. We pushed for the sugary beverage tax. We did eight years of, we had a beverage guideline. We did a lot of things to do for it, research and other things. 
I wrote several papers with my colleagues there and so on on, on beverage intake patterns. And, and we did, but in this case, the Minister of Health needed extra money. What can I do? Tax junk food. And he did. And he introduced an 8% tax on, on junk food. And it had the same kind of effect. It had an, a reduction in the junk food and a slight increase in non-junk food. And, but that's packaged food. We don't have yet the full sense of how much they purchased extra fruits, vegetables, and other kind of things. I'm only talking about packaged food. So what do we have right now? Since Mexico, we now have 39 countries going on a few more, considering it right now, ta that are taxing sugary beverages. That's just one example of kind of what these kind of evaluations and how it's exploded across the world as the needs go up. This is in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, some of the kind of taxes, the most recent being in South Africa and the Philippines. Uh, although in India, although Philippines and India really, we can't see any real price change uh, of, of, of note. But certainly in South Africa, we are. Um, the second question is, what else can we do? And one of the things is that Chile is very unique. And I'm going to talk about it a little bit more because Generally, we have four things we think we can do on a macro level that we have some evidence to justify right now. We don't have a lot of evidence in a lot of areas. Fiscal policy, taxing stuff, and maybe using it to subsidize stuff if we're really lucky, that's good. Uh, secondly, dealing with marketing of food. Thirdly, dealing with front-of-the-label profiling. And fourthly, getting healthy food into institutions like schools, hospitals, and other things that governments control. Chile did all, all of them. They had a small tax, which we've shown in papers to have a minimal effect. But then they've introduced front of the package warning labels on food and art marketing bans, first on children, the most comprehensive in the world, and then most recently, a total ban that just started this July from 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. on marketing. Um, and the law applies to all the foods and beverages. It used uniform nutrition criteria for the foods and the beverages. It added warning logos on the packages. It also got rid of all the characters. If you had a package with a, like, Tony the Tiger, and it was a junk food, it would, a food that was regulated because it had too high a sugar, fat, or salt, you didn't, couldn't have your characters on the packages. So you lost a lot there. And, uh, and they had a comprehensive thing that schools couldn't have any packages in them that had any foods in them that had these warning labels on them. And then we've added more recently, after we're just finishing evaluating over the next year, we'll be publishing a lot of papers on the, the first stuff there in Chile. And so what they did was, it says too much sugar, and you can see the yogurt that has that on it, and it's a certain size, and it's, it's very prominent. You go into a supermarket, and you can really see it. So we did focus groups as one of the things, and that's about the only thing results I can present. I wish I could do more, I'll mention, but I can't really present other results until um, in Mexico we lost for nine months a publication we were going to publish in JAMA because results came out too early and JAMA was very mad. So we, we have to be very careful. But in the focus group, we asked low-income and middle-income mothers about this stuff. And these are all quotes from low-income mothers. And you can just kind of see the norm changes going on when 
my, the sons are beginning to tell mom, the mothers, not to buy these products. And it, it's, and the same for the daughters. And we have quotes that my daughter tells me, you can't have anything. Mom, buy salads from me now, take to school. It's really quite impressive. Uh, our results will come out. We're going to show a much bigger reduction in sugary beverages than we ever showed in Mexico. We're going to, when we do get, finally get them on junk foods and other stuff the same way, it's really quite amazing how that set of laws, no taxes, just these warning labels, limited, they couldn't market to children, they could market in total, and the marketing didn't change. It just shifted from children's TV shows to other TV shows in the past. Now we're going to get rid of it. So we have a two-step process. We have two years with a law that only controlled children's marketing, and then we have, after that, a law that's getting rid of all the marketing. So we're going to have a, a, a good sense of how the two different factors affect each the purchasing. But we saw a big change in purchasing. We've seen a large change in knowledge, attitudes, and practices. But we, as I noted, we saw a huge reduction, almost 95% reduction in all the characters and other things that were on all the packages. It was really well, well implemented. Um, and we saw marketing for kids on t their TV shows going way, way down. But the marketing dollars didn't change. The total ads didn't change. They just shifted to other shows that kids watch. So that's one of the problems with just focusing on children's marketing is, is that issue. And that we will be able to show over time in Chile. Uh, Mandatory marketing, very few countries have it. And Chile's the only one that had a comprehensive one. The other ones are a couple hours a day. South Korea, I think it's three to five. Mexico, it's very, very limited. They're all meaningless. And as we've shown from the Chile, the most comprehensive child marketing law, they just shift ads to other shows that kids and the parents watch, sports shows, other things. So really, marketing laws, unless, as, as we are probably going to be shown to it, unless you get rid of it, you're not going to really get rid of it. I mean, totally get rid of it. Uh, and these are all the countries that have voluntary bans. And in every case, we've shown that these voluntary bans at industry institutes do nothing. They hardly change the marketing. And there are just tons of papers on that. Uh, so where are we going with all this? Um, the things that we haven't done are as much as we have done. We've the, the four areas I mentioned, fiscal policy like taxation, we have yet to think, we're thinking about it, we're modeling it, but we're not moving into using it to subsidize healthy foods. That's the next step. Uh, someday, decades from now, when we get Schengen back to China, I want him to, to tax 50% of sugary beverages and put it into soybeans or mung beans or other healthier foods or fruit and vegetables. We, we've, we don't have that being done yet. And that'll be one of the next steps to get a country to do that. We're trying to convince a few countries to think about that, but it's, it hasn't happened yet. The next area is the whole food service area. Uh, street vendors are third I'll come to, but just the McDonald's, the fast food, there's lots of things we know we could do. We could do things as simple as just Pricing each calorie the same. If it's a hamburger, whatever the size is, you just have to add a, has to be the same price per calorie. 
There are lots of other things we can do. Retailers, we're hardly touching them except through the kind of taxes we're giving. We haven't done other kind of regulations, and retailers do a lot of in-store marketing and other kind of things. So we're, we, we have to now get to an era of also experimentation, and we're, we're trying to move there. Um, street vendors is the hardest of all, and if anybody knows, only in Singapore have they done anything on that, and that's this wealthy little country where they created these little centers for street vendors. They put them all together in these little in these centers, and then they can go and educate them and talk to them and get them to change to healthy oils and get, cut, get them to cut the sodium and so on, but sugar, the salt, but you just can't do that. It yet, and we don't know how to deal with that in the low and middle income countries. And if you're in some countries where a lot of food in urban areas comes out of vendors and stalls, it's, it's a huge issue. So we have a lot of learning to do. It's a very early stage. Mind you, we're talking about just a half dozen years of doing anything and starting to evaluate it. So this is like the beginning. On the other hand, we did the first tax on, on tobacco and, and, and in, uh, in Massachusetts, within six years, we had six other states, and then we had a national tax in the U.S. And it took dozens of years before we got a whole bunch of countries to do taxes on them. We've got 39 countries in just four or five years since Mexico's evaluation with taxes on sugary beverages. So we are, the speed of change will be greater. The people will learn from the Chile results. They'll see how impactful they are. You'll be surprised how many countries are already. Israel's replicated Chile and has a law just like identical to Chile. They copied it verbatim. I can tell you because they kept emailing me for words and things. Uh, Uruguay, Peru have laws identical to Chile's on, on, on the front of the package profiling. Israel's very comprehensive like Chile. Other countries are looking into it. Mech India was there a week ago working with their food standard agency and they're concerning a warning label law on their foods high in sugar, salt, and fat. So countries are thinking about this, something that they never would have done given the, and the food industry is fighting. And the battles that are going on in every country because the food industry just doesn't want what Chile wants. They're saying, use what they're doing in the UK, the traffic lights, do what they're in France. Anything other than this thing that says food is, this foods are unhealthy. They just don't want that. And so you know you're being effective when the food industry is fighting you and promoting all the other kinds of things that five years earlier they were fighting. So, um, but we have a long way to go. We, you know, our goal is really to change the norms of eating, and, and it's really difficult. We're, we're like in the first stages of getting there, and it's not going to happen in my lifetime. We're, 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 we're in a long-term battle, just like we have been with tobacco, except this is a much bigger sector. This affects everybody in the world, and this is really Probably, certainly the biggest cause of 13 of the major cancers, food and obesity, certainly a major cause of, of lots of cardiovascular disease, diabetes, hypertension around the world, the food supply and getting a healthier diet. And we have all these kind of things that we can do, but in the end, we've got to figure out a way to create new norms in a new society, a w way of eating, and it's not going to be simple. It's not going to be like it may be for most of the people in this room who have learned and tried to eat healthy in one way or the other. Um, so with that,
I end and I'm on time <laughs> by skipping a few slides and, and Marie wasn't going to shoot me and throw daggers at me. All right, I'm done.